Are you looking for a different way to experience Japan from the comfort of your own home? Look no further than Tokyo Treat. Tokyo Treat is a monthly pop Japanese subscription box that brings you 20 of the latest, exclusive, limited edition, and seasonal flavored Japanese snacks that are only available otherwise in Japan. Some only for a limited time, like Sakura Pepsi, Japanese Sake Kit Kats, ramen, and a lot more. September's box helps bring the celebration of Skimi, or Japanese moon viewing, to you and your taste buds. This centuries-old tradition is a time to go outdoors and appreciate the beauty of the autumn moon and hopefully cooler weather while giving thanks for the harvest. Well, Tokyo Treat has harvested some Skimi-themed snacks just for you to enjoy under the moonlight with friends and family, including chestnut-flavored Kit Kats, mint chocolate moon pebbles, full moon rice crackers, and more. Check out the booklet inside your curated box for more information about the snacks you'll receive, as well as allergen information and a wealth of details about Japanese culture. Sign up today, whether it's for you or maybe just as a gift for a friend or a family member. And use our promo code KOJPODCAST, K-O-J-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and check our show notes or link tree for more details. Yoroshiku ne! With only three episodes left in Season 4, we'll be recording our Season 4 recap episode within the next couple weeks, but we want to hear from you. Got some feedback, stories, requests, input, almost anything really. Send us an email to Crew of Japan Podcast, K R E W E O F J A P A N P O D C A S T at gmail.com. Can't wait to see that email inbox bursting at the brim. And who knows, maybe even yours will get read on the episode. Until then, we look forward to hearing from you guys. Here's what's going on with Japan Society of New Orleans. Come out to the Jefferson Performing Arts Center on Wednesday, September 20th from 5.30 to 8.30 and hang with Japan Society in New Orleans, among so many other organizations at Culture Collision 13. The event is free and open to the public. Check the Japan Society website for more details. Also, October is just around the corner, and that means Japan Fest is as well. Japan Fest is being held on October 14th all day at New Orleans Museum of Art. Japan Society will be looking for some volunteers to work our table and Samurai Armor Tryon Station. So keep your eyes peeled for the sign-up email coming in the next few weeks. Or just check out the Japan Society website for more details. Let's go! Hello, I'm Doug, and welcome to the Crew of Japan podcast, a weekly podcast where we take you on audio journeys through Japanese culture. This time on Crew of Japan podcast. Welcome back to our podcast. Growing up in the late 1980s and 1990s, when someone wanted to play video games, they didn't say, I want to play a video game. They said, I want to play Nintendo. Nintendo was, during that time, the band-aid of video games. The Nintendo brand ruled supreme. It was video games. However, technology has evolved so much, and the sheer volume of options available in the video game industry make it virtually impossible for any one company to achieve the level of brand awareness that Nintendo possessed during the 80s and 90s. But how did Nintendo get there? That kind of domination doesn't just happen overnight. Lucky for you, today we'll find out, as this episode is a crossover event. Pop culture meets Japanese, and really, world history. Back in the late spring, the crew sat down with Matt Ault, our first ever podcast guest, acclaimed author of Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, co-host of Pure Tokyo Scope Podcast, and, as one of our listeners actually called him, the modern-day Lafcadio Hearn. During his research for Pure Invention, Matt dug deep into the history of the company that we all know as Nintendo, from its humble beginnings as a playing card company to its various pivots along the way, before its transformation into the behemoth in the video game industry. So naturally, Matt was the first person we thought of when coming up with this episode. Anyway, let's get started. 
So insert your coin, sit back, and enjoy this pop culture history lesson on the beloved Nintendo company, as told by Matt Ald. Let's go. All right, and we're back with the podcast, and we have a familiar face with us today. We have, obviously, Jennifer, our, our one of our primary familiar faces, being that she's a co-host, and I always forget <laughs> to introduce her, but we have Jennifer. But we also have another familiar face who may as well be a co-host for this podcast because he's right? been on here so many times. <laughs> this is the fourth time. I think you're our first four-peat. Uh, I, keep, yeah, you are. I keep turning up like a bad yenny. <laughs> No. Uh, so, so the, you you opened our series up. We, it's Matt Altwood. Oh yeah, yeah you opened our say who it is, yeah. right? Exactly. I didn't actually say who it was. We have Matt Alt with us of Pure Invention fame, of Pure Tokyo Scope fame. If you listen to podcasts, and let's not forget the new Pure Invention newsletter, which I just launched. You can on find your it Substack, at, right? Yes, pureinventionbook.com. Uh, it's there, pureinventionbook.com/slash/newsletter. Please check it out, as we used to yes. say in NHK. Yes, and like we were saying, like you are our first guest ever, our first repeat yep. guest, our first guest co-host. Well, I thank think, you. Uh, when we did the yep. Gene Pelk episode last year. It's uh, an honor. So, it's, an, it's an honor. So really. many firsts for us. You know, I'm always, I'm always down when Nola is in the picture, you know, it's like, yeah. I was, we're still you know. waiting on that visit. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. There's so many, so many cocktail bars to visit. So little time. Uh, Whenever you do, drop us a line. I will. Know. We'll have to podcast from from the city. We'll have to do it. Yes, from there. we'll have to figure that out. We'll do it like a, a either a live stream or something. I don't yes. know. We'll figure, we'll figure <laughs> well, I wanna, out. I want my dream is that we do the podcast from Lafcadio, not Lafcadio Hearn, because his his house I think is is not open to the public. But the, uh, <laughs> Jokichi Takamine's house, the uh, inventor of Japanese whiskey. I'd love to do that. It's We're still working on that yes. from our, our sidebar conversation. Yes, yes, he's right there. His house is right there at the edge of the quarter. We should totally do it. When this episode comes out, it'll be probably way past the point of when we're talking about him. <laughs> I'm trying to meet up with you, but... <laughs> All right. I'll try to meet up with you. You can show me some cocktail bars. Absolutely. In, uh, that's, what I'm, that's, what I, that's what I do. That's your, that's your job. It is, exactly. <laughs> but your other job is being ingrained in Japanese pop culture. As one of our listeners referred to you on a Reddit, I was on there sharing one of our uh, Tokusatsu episodes, and they referred to you as a modern-day Lafcadio Hearn. That's nice. Wow. Nice. That's so what an nice. Honor. <laughs> that's the, wow. That's like you know. I think every person who comes to Japan and and makes a living writing aspires to be that. But it's so it, it's it's. Nobody can call themselves that. I, I, I don't think of myself that way, but it's really an honor. <laughs> it's an honor to be that have be said of me. I, thank you, whoever you are. I know who it is, and I'll uh, I'll, I'll send that <laughs> thanks to them the later ghost on. Lafcadio <laughs> Hearn himself, <laughs> you know. Since you are so well versed in pretty much everything pop culture Japan, oh. and you've done so much research over the years for your book and for all of the things you talk about. One of the big topics, and especially with the release of the new Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom, we wanted to talk about the history of Nintendo mm -hmm. and just kind of do a historical deep dive, kind of find out their roots and then travel a long time with them to see how it got to modern day, to where we got to present day Nintendo life and how they exist in not only in Japan, but also the modern world. Lots of twists and turns in that tale. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's start off with the early days. You know, Nintendo is... is known now as a video game powerhouse globally. But 
not everyone knows it's like true origin right. story of being in a playing card company, right? Definitely, so definitely. can you tell us a little bit about the early days of Nintendo as a playing card company? Well, first of all, I think I should kind of establish, you know, what, why I'm talking yes, about please. this. Yes, please. I'm not an employee of Nintendo. I never have been. I played Nintendo, you know, big surprise there. I did a deep dive on Nintendo's history when I wrote Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And I spoke at, at length to many people uh, involved directly and peripherally with Nintendo, most uh, interestingly with uh, Masayuki Uemura, who was the engineer of the Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Nintendo, and many other products. He actually headed up uh, R&D2 team. There were two oh, wow. research and development teams there, one led by a gentleman who you may have heard of named Gunpei Yokoi who is famed as uh, the kind of mentor of uh, Mario's creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, and the engineer of the Game Boy. So Uemura-san, who unfortunately passed away uh, a little over a year ago, gave me a lot of insight into how things worked inside Nintendo, which is great because He's retired, and people who actually work for Nintendo don't talk about Nintendo. It's I like, feel like, do they have like like a clause in their contract to yeah. not allow them to talk about it? Is well, that what it is? It's it's like the family La Familia, you know. It's like yeah, you I don't... definitely feel like that's the way. But don't you have to like sign a sign something like a release form yeah, to yeah, even go into headquarters? Like what happens in Kyoto stays, stays in Kyoto. In Kyoto. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this this actually is a good lead into what you asked about because you know we told me, and I've heard this from many other sources, you know, Kyoto is, I, I, I've spent my entire life and, and career in Japan in Tokyo. I'm a Tokyo guy. Uh, but Kyoto is a very different sort of place. It's a very different sort of atmosphere. It was the, once the capital of Japan many, many centuries ago. And the, many of the people who live there still feel like it's the capital. And it's, it's kind of its own, it's, it's its own little world. It's very traditional. Tradition has been more preserved there, not least of which because Kyoto was struck from the list of bombing targets during World War II by, uh, 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 I forget what his, his title was, Stimson. He was like the head of the, of the war department during the uh, 1940s and had visited Kyoto and struck it off the list because he felt that it would be too much of a, like it was a beautiful city. And it would be too much of a, a kind of emotional blow to the Japanese to lose you know, it. I, I think I've heard that story before too. Yeah, it's yeah, true. It's, yeah. It's, very, it's true and it's it's pretty well known actually yes. yeah, that Kyoto was kind of like off limits because it was such a amazing place that they were like, we can't do that. Yeah, well, it wasn't a war like materiel place. It was a, it was a site yeah. of culture and history. Yeah. And it just so happened that one of the Americans in charge of the bombing campaign decided to, and I think he did it kind of unilaterally. I think he kind of snuck in and scraped it off the list like you know scratch it off you know unfortunately that meant some other city got wasted in its place right, so it's, right. this isn't like really something to celebrate but at any rate kyoto survived world war ii relatively unscathed and actually that's why pure invention is the the opening chapter is set there the toy industry relaunched in in kyoto in 1945 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which leads again to nintendo so Nintendo got its start in 1889 as a purveyor of Hanafuda cards. And they're called playing cards sometimes in English, but they're not playing cards like we think of as, you know, that we use in like bridge or poker or something like that. They're used in a traditional game of gambling. And mm -hmm. there was a big fad for them in the Edo period, late Edo, early Meiji period when Nintendo started. And they're very colorful. They're made of washi paper. They're more like cardboard than they are like we think of as playing cards. And uh, they have very fun patterns on them. And again, they're used in a game of gambling. 
And so when you say gambling in Japan, you inevitably also link that to gangsters. And while Nintendo was not in any way, shape, or form like a gang-affiliated company, it's a fact that many of the people who consumed this product were. And、mm-hmm. particularly by the time that Hiroshi Yamauchi took over in the immediate post-war era, it was a family-run company. It was run by the Yamauchi family. And they made these Hanafuda cards for many decades. But by the early post-war era, that game had really fallen out of favor. It was seen as super old-fashioned. It was seen as something that you know, kind of polite society didn't engage in. And Nintendo was still running its lines. It had very you know, these big production lines to make the cards because there's all sorts of processes involved in making them and things like that. But the company was kind of struggling after World War II to to find its way. And the grandson of the gentleman who was running the company, the grandson being named Hiroshi Yamauchi. Was basically tapped to lead the company and took over and tasked himself with modernizing it. I'm, I'm leaving a lot of detail and steps out here, but this is basically、yeah. it. <laughs> and Hiroshi Yamauchi is the gentleman who kind of stewarded, shepherded Nintendo in its evolution from making these cards into the company that we know it today. He was there for that entire arc of that. Okay. And isn't now like the old headquarters a hotel? Like you could actually stay there. So there's actually, you know, if you go to downtown Kyoto, it's actually really quite near the station.、Uh, there is an old Nintendo building there, and I've heard that there was, for a long time, it was just kind of fenced off, and I don't know what Nintendo was using it for. It was still in great repair; it wasn't like abandoned or anything. But the only thing you could see was like a metal plate that said, you know, the Nintendo Playing、yeah. Card Company on the outside. I have heard that they are doing some. Something with that? I think But, it's a hotel. So that makes sense because Nintendo is now really actively tapping into its, for lack of a better word, soft power. Its kind of charisma around. It's finally leaning into its being more than just a video game company and like a kind of turning into kind of a lifestyle company, sort of like how Studio Ghibli has done in recent years.、Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, Nintendo has ventured off into many other things、yes. besides the playing cards. You know, it's dabbled into like love hotels and taxis and stuff. Oh yeah, no, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So what happens is in 1948, Yamauchi's grandfather, who is the president of Nintendo, has a stroke, and they basically yank Yamauchi. Yamauchi left Kyoto. He went to Tokyo. He's going to Waseda University. By all accounts, he is—I mean—he's very wealthy, which isn't the case for most Japanese at the time. And so he's this kind of dandy. He's like living it up in the big city of Tokyo. He's, you know, having fun. He's partying. He's—he's he's going to university, which is something in 1948 that a lot of Japanese people didn't do. So he's already kind of part of the upper crust. He's already part of the elite, and has a very sort of different. Background than the average Japanese. Because remember, 1948, Japan has been leveled. It, it has been totally leveled. The Tokyo that Yamauchi was in was literally like huge sections of it must have looked like I mean, no joke, like parts of Ukraine look now. Like tanks, you know, just destroyed streetcars, like you know, destroyed roads, destroyed buildings. And he's studying law, and he really, really wanted to complete that degree, but he never did because with the stroke of his grandfather, he had to be pulled out and run Nintendo. And he had no experience running a big company. He's a young guy. He's like a college student. And he actually, in those early years, had a bunch of issues with his workers. They didn't want to listen to him, and it finally came to a head where he basically, in a Godfather-style move, like fired all of the the. You know, there was like a strike, <laughs> and then there was like, or a threat of a strike, and he basically just fired 
all of the people who were loyal to his grandfather and installed new people in the company and turned Nintendo into his own. And it was kind of a brutal thing, but it was something that had to happen because now he had full control over the company. Yeah, I can imagine the tug of war going back and forth with that. It's oh yeah, because just... you know it's, it's a traditional company. Like mm-hmm. they probably they mm-hmm. probably saw like Yamauchi as like a fop, you know what I mean? Who is this dandified kid from the big city, you know, with his suits and his, you know, his champagne tastes coming in and telling us, the people of Kyoto, you know, the the workers who've been here with, for generations, what to do? Yeah. It was an interesting position to be in. I think I, I heard from Uemura-san that basically Nintendo was sort of looked down on in in Kyoto society. It was not at the back then. It was not the top rungs of society. Not only because they were making these Hanafuda cards, but because they had been "quote unquote" only founded in 1889, they were seen as an upstart, even in the 1950s. Uh. Like Kyoto is a city that is full of traditional shops that are hundreds of years old. Yeah. And in the social hierarchy of that city, you know, the artisans and the craftspeople who have inherited traditions that are hundreds of years old are at the top. And these kind of, you know, if you've only got a hundred under your belt, well, hey, kid, That's you got nothing. You <laughs> learning to do, you know? So funny thinking about that, just from an American perspective, where it's like, you know, U.S. is only like how many years old? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I'm sure like getting that new blood into the company was the turning point. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, because, you know, suddenly you have this 20-something, you know, kid, you know, full of piss and vinegar, as they say, you know, running the company. And Yamauchi was somebody who was not like, I think maybe because he had suffered through that mutiny early on and because he knew Nintendo was not, you know, necessarily looked up to in Kyoto, I think he he felt like he had a lot of room to innovate and to try new mm-hmm. things and do new things. And he he wanted to be successful. Like, he, he really wanted to win, quote unquote. I don't think in a sense of dominating other companies, although that does come into the picture later on, but in, in terms of, you know, proving that he was the right guy to run this. So over the 50s and, you know, early 60s, he starts really modernizing things. Nintendo was for a very long time in in the post-war era and really up until the late 70s, a toy company. Mm. The way they became a toy company was Yamauchi was the first person to make playing cards. Playing cards at the time, like in the early 50s, were associated with gambling too. But then he had the idea of, what if we put Disney characters on them? What if we put uh. Disney characters on them and sell them to kids so we can expand the market just from like, you know, scuzzy adults into children? And so he went to America and he actually met with like Roy Disney. This is like 1959, I think, 1960. He goes over and like he negotiates with Roy Disney. I don't think he made it up to Walt, but Roy. And like Roy gave him a tour of the Magic Kingdom. This was the first time Yamauchi saw the power of characters and licensing. And I'm sure he liked what he saw. He sees somebody in the States who turned a mouse into a literal kingdom, you know, like right, a, right. <laughs> over there, right? And cool. so he he brings this Disney thing back and this his his playing cards were a huge hit with the Disney characters on them. And they were placed not in the, the stores that you would normally see cards and they were placed in toy stores. So this gave Nintendo its kind of first toehold into that area. Uh, and it was important because there's a big baby boom going on, right? There's a lot of kids. Right, right. From there, do they only stick to that toy and children's realm of products? I, you know, Jen had mentioned earlier the the taxis and the love hotels. Yes, where they still maintain that presence in like the adult world. So yeah, what happened was that even though these playing cards did really well, and he's selling like 
At one point, they're selling hundreds of thousands of units a year, right? And he's dominating、mm. the playing card market. But Yamauchi isn't like the kind of guy who's going to be satisfied with just like simple success. And he realizes that there, you know, no matter how big of a playing card company he becomes, there's limits to what he can do. And so he decides to start diversifying.、Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is where things get really interesting.、Um, in the '60s, Nintendo is doing all sorts of crazy stuff, or I should say, Yamauchi. You know, he founds,、uh, he 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 purchases a taxi company. And then he also, in concert with that, buys a share in and, and takes ownership of a love hotel, which is, you know, a, as you know, in Japan, a, a, a kind of a place for like a by the hour place for trysting with your with your lover, right? And th- this、Lovers. led lovers, <laughs> yeah, because this is the thing. There were a lot of newspaper articles at the time <laughs> that were making fun of Yamauchi. Because you know he was reportedly a big customer of this. Like it, it, it makes、uh, sense when you think about it. Because the taxi driver, you'd get into a taxi with your your girlfriend or whoever it was, and say, "Hey, you know a good place we can go?" And the taxi driver is like, "Yeah, buddy, the Nintendo Love Hotel," and he'd take you over there, right? <laughs> or, or whatever love hotel that your taxi service was affiliated with. So this is like one step away from like being a kind of brothel type situation, yeah, really, <laughs> right? It's really right, different、right. than what you think of Nintendo today. So, were they branded as Nintendo, no, or they have an, no, another name? No, 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 no. The, the, the taxi、okay. company was called Daya, I think, and I think、okay. it's still in business today. It was like I, I don't think he 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 founded it. I think he acquired it. Like like Taxi Love Hotel, like they were kind of like a package deal. But and like、uh, it's, it's、okay. not that like he wanted. He's like,、hmm, maybe we should get into the you know Mustang Ranch <laughs> business. You know, I think it was just <laughs> Yamauchi San was an incredibly entrepreneurial guy. If he saw an angle, he went for it, and he didn't care what other people thought. And so after that, like he started, he he realized, you know, obviously that's not going to make the company big either. They're probably making some money off of it, and they start doing like they they get involved with a with a, with like a instant rice venture, and so they're making like instant rice. They're doing all of these things, and and they're just not really working. But it's interesting because you know Yamauchi has the resources coming in from the playing cards and his own wealth to be able to take weird chances. You know, I studied a little bit about Japanese business history when I was a study abroad student at Sofia University, right, and right. you know, hearing about the Zaibatsu and the Keiratsu and stuff, where they literally had, you know, there was a company, but there are so many subdivisions of that、oh, company,、yeah. like the spectrum of what type of products they offered was、oh, so、sure. vast. Oh sure, this sounds kind of similar in that, like, it was in that same mindset. Yamauchi was the kind of guy who knew how to exploit a niche, but like he didn't really know how to launch one. And so that's why when you're talking, like in the '60s, he's just kind of casting around, splashing about. And Nintendo of the '60s was not like even remotely on anybody's radar, except maybe locally.、Mm-hmm. They were doing well with the playing cards, but it was just this little company run by this odd guy who's just kind of trying desperately to to, to have to come up with hits. But the Nintendo story really takes a turn in the mid '60s when a young guy by the name of Gunpei Yokoi joins up, and Yokoi was, you know, Kyoto-born, raised, educated, but he wasn't particularly ambitious. And when he graduated from from university, he just wanted to stay in Kyoto, and he he just took a job on, you know, he was an engineer, and he took a job as a as a kind of a maintenance guy, maintaining Nintendo's Hanafuda lines. And these are like these、okay. big, big machines, and、so、he's basically a service dude. You know, he's like one、yeah. step removed from a janitor. 
But Yokoi is a pretty inventive guy and he loves like making things and like going into the workshop and bashing things together. And actually that's why he took the job with Nintendo. It was so low stress that would give him time to kind of like experiment, play around during the day, even during work and, and on his free time. At one point he, he uses the lathe and some other parts in the machine shop to come up with this accordion hand toy that's called that that's like you know it's like one of those things that are the warner brothers like looney tunes like you can use it and extend the the hand across the room with like these accordion you know you know what i'm talking oh, about yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, yeah. the metal the metal bars kind of scissoring yeah, together yeah yeah, yeah i don't yeah. know what you what you call that in english or even in japanese i don't even i don't know either <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a big spring hand that comes out and yeah. like he and the guys in the factory are playing around with it when Yamauchi hears about it. And Yamauchi's like, send that guy to my office immediately. And Yokoi <laughs> is like, oh man, I finally did it. Like I had like the easiest job in the world and I'm finally getting fired. And he kind of trudges up to Yamauchi's office and Yamauchi's like, kid, this thing's great. Make a toy out of it. And Yokoi is like, what? Like his head's spinning and then it's spinning the other way. <laughs> He's, He's like, like, what? what? <laughs> He's like, it's just a stupid hand thing, boss. How am I going to make a toy out of it? And he's like, I don't care. Make a toy out of it. Slam. You know, it kicks, kicks, you know, Yokoi out of the office. Yokoi goes back down to his room and he comes up with this half-assed, you know, okay, you can use it to like stack balls in cups or something like that. He puts like suction cups on the end of it and he comes up with something and it's really, he's like, I don't know, I guess it's a toy. And Yamuchi sees it and he's like, whatever, that's fine. Great. Let's do it. And they dub it, <laughs> they dub it the Ultra Hand. Now, there, there, there's something to note here. This, this comes out in 1966. And there's something else that came out in 1966. It's called Ultraman, the oh. live action <laughs> science fiction series starring a dude in a giant silver and red suit who karate chops kaiju into submission. It was the biggest thing in Japan in 1966. It was huge. It kicked off this boom for kaiju stuff that arguably has persisted into the present day because uh, everybody loves kaiju. But it's no coincidence that Yamauchi chose to call this thing the Ultra Hand. Um, none it at all. Rhymes, sort of? Yeah. Ultra Hand. <laughs> maybe it rhymes. Ultra it just, Man's like, Hand. Sounds like the same damn thing. <laughs> so this, exactly. And then this thing turns into a <laughs> major hit. Like huge, huge, huge hit. Like giant so were the copyright rules kind of loose back then? Like, well, I guess Ultra wasn't really like copyrighted. So, so this is the like, thing. We'll play with it. Yeah, definitely. I don't know that you could even copyright this. Ultra is a word, right? It's like right, an right. adjective, I guess. Is it? Yeah. An adverb? Plus Ultra, right? Yeah, plus Ultra. <laughs> so the, the fascination with the, this is a kind of sidebar, but the reason Japanese are so were and, and kind of are still obsessed with the word Ultra is that during the Olympics, which had been just a couple years before, the Japanese uh, gymnast, the one of the Japanese gymnasts used, and I can't remember, is it the, the parallel bars or the, you know, what, or is it the, the, the hanging ring thing? I'm not sure. They used a technique called the Ultra C to win the gold medal. Oh, and that okay. like just injected ultra. And there's all sorts of, of ultras in Japanese pop culture of the 60s. There's Ultra Man, of course, and there's this Ultra Hand. There's Ultra B, who is an ultra baby. And that's like a, a kind <laughs> of character from Fujiko F. Fujio, who, who did, uh, went out to do Doraemon. Uh, so there's oh. all sorts of ultras at this time. It was like the, 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 the word of the year for a while. 
I'm surprised they didn't use like the word ultra in like any of their gaming systems then since it was like such a yeah, hype thing. Yeah, it's a good point. Like why isn't it like the, the Nintendo Ultra gaming system? I don't yeah. Know. Well, maybe by the, 80s, con, it, right? by the 80s it had call it, kind of fallen out of favor, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah. it wasn't cool anymore to say like ultra. Yeah. Super super was the new one. Super was the new one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not the ultra Nintendo system. It's the, it's the super <laughs> Nintendo entertainment system. But so this this basically like flips things at Nintendo and Yamauchi makes Yokoi the head of this new kind of like games department and they put them in a like a little warehouse that's apart from the rest of Nintendo's operations and tells them to just keep innovating. And over the course of the remainder of the 60s, like Nintendo is making all sorts of toys, like puzzles and like they actually do license Ultraman characters. They make this really cool, like kind of Ultraman, like marble on a track game. Oh, really? And doing, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And that's all they do is make toys. And actually at one point, this is another kind of interesting sidebar from the research in my book. The biggest toy company of the 60s in Japan was called Marusan. And they were so huge because they made soft vinyl figures of kaiju toys from the Ultraman series. And at one point, Marusan fell on kind of hard times, and it turned out they shared a bank with Nintendo. And I heard this from an ex-Marusan employee. That bank employee, when they came in for a loan, said, no, you know what? You need to merge. I, I think you guys should discuss merging with this company in Kyoto called Nintendo. And so Marusan and Nintendo actually, you know, the presidents of the two companies sat down at a hot spring resort in Atami and tried to hammer out some kind of deal where they would merge. And they just, there were two big personalities who ran those two companies and it didn't work out. But there's like this parallel universe where Nintendo merged with this, this other toy company and became an even bigger toy company instead of becoming a video gaming company. So it's 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 really it's really interesting all these kind of paths less taken and stuff like that. But sixties like they're just a toy company. That's all they are. Right. They're, they're right. making playing cards. They've gotten to toys. video games. What year did the NES or even Game and Watch? I think that was like the first. Oh, seventies. Right? Like, that's late seventies. So we're exactly. still in the sixties. So there's still there's still a, a gap between here and Huge. there when we actually get to when they actually dabble in video games. Well, the bridge between that comes with Yokoi again. A uh, Yokoi was a he's a toy maker. He likes making physical toys, but he recruits this guy from Sharp named Masayuki Uemura, who you might remember. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who I said I, I interviewed for Pure Invention. Mm-hmm. And Yokoi and Uemura started to devise these increasingly complicated electronic toys. Most importantly, ones they invented a light gun that would let you shoot light beams or more accurately, they, they kind of detected light beams, but it looked like you were shooting them and like knock down targets and stuff like that. And these these kind of novelty light gun toys turned out to be a hit. And Nintendo in the in the mid seventies decided to expand and to make like arcade style light gun shooting experiences. They called it laser clay. And laser like, clay. Okay. yeah, you they actually I don't know if they modified real hunting rifles, but they look real. Like, and you would use hunting rifles, and you would go into a converted bowling alley where they would project clay, you know, like pigeons, you know, those clay clay targets on the wall, Mm -hmm. and you would follow them and shoot them with the light gun rifles. And they were poised to make this their big, big thing. This was going to be the big next thing. They actually, they hired... Yeah. Precursor duck hunt, huh? It's absolutely absolutely what it is. That's absolutely... There's no no coincidence that one of the first Nintendo accessories was a light gun. Uh, that's yeah. that's yeah. Yokoi and and uh, Uemura's uh, invention, 
anyway, it, like they're really serious about this. They're, like they figured this is going to be the future of Nintendo, and they actually hired Sonny Chiba of uh, Kill Bill fame, and you know oh, yeah. so many '70s movies. He was the he was already an action star in Japan at that time, and he was the kind of spokes dude for uh, Laser Clay. But what happened was the first oil shock hit, and like the economy just crashed. Everybody stayed home, and the laser clay thing died on the vine. It just totally died, and Nintendo was screwed. This is the mid 1970s, and let me tell you, if you were to go back in time and ask any Japanese business person in the entertainment or the, the toy or any basically industry what they thought of Nintendo, they'd be like, "Oh, it's going to be out of business soon." Nobody expected anything from this company. Nothing. It was just, this is like a really, really low period. Hard to believe now, huh? I know, right, yeah, because I was right. about to say, I mean, man, <laughs> Nintendo has the last laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's, it's a testament, <laughs> I think, to Yamauchi's resilience, right? Like, this is one of those guys who exactly. you know, right. shot with a light gun and, and, and got right back up, you know? <laughs> it's like the Terminator. <laughs> you know, this guy is like, he's unstoppable. So... You know, fortunately for Yamauchi, he heard around this very same time that in America and Europe, these things called television games were starting to take off. Atari, Magnavox, you know, all of these things. And so he's like, you know what? Television games, you know, and he, you know, he's the pivot master, right? He like just pivots again into this. He's like, fine, fine. Sonny Chiba, you keep all the rifles, you know, you keep them, use them in your productions, whatever. We're going to, we're going to pivot into video games. The only problem was they had absolutely no experience. And so he tells the guy who I interviewed, Ue Murasan, just make it, make a television game, make it. And to be brutally honest, Nintendo's first steps into this field were total copies of other companies' products. Like, there's no gilding this lily. What's the word I'm looking for? There's no there's no getting around this. Like, <laughs> Nintendo's first TV game product, which is called the Color TV Game 6, is just a copy of Pong. Remember Pong? Oh, the, yeah. The, the, yeah. Two, the two little paddles and the ball and then like they <laughs> claim there's six games but like one's hockey and one's like tennis but they're all exactly the same game because there's no graphics <laughs> it's just like yeah you're a rectangle and like here's a square and like hit it I, I was an avid atari player when i was a child my dad had the old atari the original atari with the little joy joystick with the button yes and oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, didn't yeah. have et didn't have et but uh <laughs> it's funny, even as a kid, even as a little kid, when I got E.T., I was like, man, this sucks. You know, it's just like, <laughs> this is a terrible game. Uh, probably in that exact high-pitched voice, I like to think. But um, so Nintendo is making all of these like knockoff games and then they get in arcade games. And those games are knockoffs too. Like they're they're making like knockoffs of, of Space Invaders. Mm-hmm. And Space Invaders hits really big in Japan in like 78. And all these companies, it's like the, 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 the rules of copyright on video games aren't really clear at this point, right? And so, you know, Taito is, is making a fortune off of Space Invaders. And then like everybody starts copying it, including Nintendo, to the point where like, like these lawsuits start getting thrown back and forth. And there's like this amazing, I found when I was researching the book, I found this amazing TV documentary from the era on Space Invaders, 
where this guy is going around to like the reporters going around to all of the Space Invaders arcades. And back then an arcade was just Space Invaders. That's what an arcade yeah. was. At least that's what all that anyone ever really cared about. <laughs> you know, you know, it was really one of the only big, you know, it yeah, was the only was. hit game. And by the way, side note, in Nakano Broadway, They've just opened up like like a replica yeah, Space Invaders cafe. Yes, I'm so excited yes. by this. I'm so excited by this. <laughs> and back then in Japan, like the arcade games weren't like the big cabinets we know. They were like the cocktail style. You would sit down and, and play them and like put your drink on top of them and, and play the game. So it was a kind of yeah. different sort of experience. But like the point of this, Yamauchi's interviewed and he's like, hey man, games are games. You know, we should, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'll dig it up. But it's like, games are games. You can't, you can't patent or copyright a style of gameplay. You know what? I think whenever a video game company comes up with a big hit, they should share it with the other video game companies. That's what I think. Because it, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll make the Japanese game industry grow as a whole. Yeah, share, share and share the alike. The irony of Nintendo saying yes. that. Uh, they don't. Like, this is this is one of the reasons it's difficult to like work with big corporations like this when you write <laughs> histories of them because there's a lot of stuff they don't want known like this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's really funny. He's sitting. He's got his slicked back hair. He's smoking. He's like, "Yeah, man, games. You can't patent a game." <laughs> it's just like, wow. Are we on the same planet? On the same universe? And it's important to note here: Nintendo can't even make its own games. They have no in-house expertise. They're they're outsourcing it yeah. to other companies, pretty much. And this is around the time, 1979, 1980, when Nintendo takes another big turn, where Yamauchi gets another big, big score. He hires a kid named Shigeru Miyamoto. And Miyamoto the is literal just... literal game changer. Well, and he's not, a, but he's not a game designer. He's not a programmer. He's just, a, he's a graphic designer. He's a, he's a graphic illustrator. And uh, he, he's like basically doing like pamphlets for them and like, you know, font design and things like that at this point. But it's really interesting. Every other video game company on the planet is made up of programmers. Atari has like Steve Jobs and like Steve Wozniak. You have like, you know, Sharp Electronics, you have Magnavox, you have all these, you know, all of these game companies, they're staffed by engineers. And the, the problem with, that's really cool when the engineers come up with a with something that really works, like, you know, when they got the idea to turn Pong on its side and make Breakout, you know, and then when Breakout, when somebody in Japan gets the idea to make Breakout a bunch of aliens and shoot lasers at them and you get Space Invaders, right? Or Galaxia. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the skill set between, like, somebody who is a... You can be a hotshot programmer but not know a thing about graphic design or, like, gameplay, right? Yeah. So this... I mean, yeah. Yeah. You can be an amazing writer, but you don't know how to draw. You know what I mean? Or or vice versa, which is why so many comic books have a different artist and a, and a different writer, a right? A different writer, yeah. Well, back in time, in the early days of the, of the game industry, you had to be a programmer and a game designer at the same time. But since Nintendo didn't have any programmers, it all fell on people like Gunpei Yokoi and Shigeru Miyamoto to design games and then outsource it to people who would just follow their their footsteps, tell you know, make the game look like this, make it play like this. So ironically, Nintendo's total ineptitude at programming in-house turned into this the foundation of how modern games are made we're like the guy directing the game or art directing the game or you know is not the person actually writing the code for the game that that's that's not how it works you have a game designer a, yeah. ga a game designer designs the game 
and then, or the director designs the game, how he wants it to play and then orders the art department, you know, the, the programmers, the, you know, the riggers, the, you know, 3D visualizers, whatever to, to make the game in their vision, right? Like a movie. You know, it's like George Lucas doesn't like, you know, run the camera. He tells the camera, the cinematographer what to do or did back when he still made movies. So like, this is a huge, this is a huge like leap forward. Like Shigeru Miyamoto is not a programmer, neither is Yokoi, but they know what's fun. Like Yokoi has decades of experience making toys. He knows yeah. what play is. And so Yokoi takes Miyamoto under his wing and kind of tutors him. And, you know, there were some false starts, but then the two of them together come up with a game based on Popeye. Not just based on Popeye, based on a very specific episode of Popeye called A Dream Walking, where Popeye and Blue, they watch this cartoon together, or at least Yokoi does, and it involves olive oil gets, like, knocked on the head and is kind of sleepwalking. And she starts sleepwalking through this construction site. And Popeye and Bluto are like as always punching each other out they're running on the girders they're knocking each other up and down levels and they're trying to save olive oil while they're fighting themselves at the same time and this gives yokoi this idea for a game set in a construction sort of environment you can probably see where i'm going with this oh yeah but yeah <laughs> the problem is is the the negotiations with i think it's called king rights features who who owned popeye they took too long and they, they it's just, it was just and so they're like you know what Forget it. Forget it. Use the engine and, and make your own characters. You know what? Miyamoto-san, or Miyamoto-kun, because he's underneath Yokoi, just redesign this. We're going to use the same game, same levels, same everything, but get rid of Popeye and olive oil and make somebody else. And Miyamoto comes back with, he turns Bluto into a gorilla. He turns uh, olive oil into, uh, I think she's called Pauline. And then he yeah. he, he yeah. turns uh, Popeye into a character he calls Jumpman, wearing red overalls and a blue jacket and a little mustache. He doesn't look anything like Popeye. And Donkey looks Kong like a plumber. He looks like a plumber. He looks like, <laughs> yeah, he's a plumber. I don't think there was even any background back then. Miyamoto yeah. said- Yeah, no, it, I don't think there was. In later interviews, he said he wanted to call him Mr. Video, like, you know, for Mr. a video, video game. And he wanted to put him in, he knew he wanted to put him in different games. But there was no background to what his, you know, background is or what his story was or anything like that, other than he's in this construction site and kind of vaguely inspired by Popeye. And Donkey Kong was born and Pac-Man came before it, one year before it. Pac-Man was a huge hit. Donkey Kong was like an epic hit, like a transformational epic hit because it was the first video game that actually felt like playing a cartoon. Like Pac-Man was still kind of a puzzle maze sort of thing. Donkey Kong had like a soundtrack, it had characters, it had drama, like, and the graphics had improved to the point where it actually looked like something you'd see on a cartoon you screen. Huge, huge, huge hit. So that's Donkey Kong. And that that is like the jumping off point for Nintendo becoming an original maker of original content, not just copying other people's stuff, which it had been totally up until that point. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. with that success, they were like, this worked out really well. Let's uh, keep going with this momentum. Yeah, I, I, like, honestly, seriously, I don't think Shigeru Miyamoto could have gotten a job at Namco or Taito or Atari or any of those companies. They probably would have laughed him. What? You've never you've never programmed before? <laughs> you know, it's but the way he worked, which is to design the characters and the gameplay, it basically set the stage for the way games would be made in the future going forward. What was he? He he flipped what was a disadvantage into a huge advantage. 
for someone like him, character design is probably one of the most important things about a game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, I spoke to Uemura-san about that, the engineer of the NES, and I was like, why do you think... Because, you know, you have Donkey Kong, and then you have Mario Brothers, and then you have Super Mario Brothers, and then you have Zelda, and you have, like, all of these different, like, amazing, amazing games coming out of R&D 1, Nintendo's... Uh, R&D 1 is like mainly the games and R&D 2 is mainly the hardware, although there was some kind of crossover there. But I said to Uwe Murasan, I'm like, what was it about this stuff that so like gripped the world, like including me when we were kids? Like why, why some people in Kyoto had the key to this? And, you know, at first he's like, I did. So I wanted to ask you that. Aren't you writing a book about it? But, you know, I I, I was like, God, yes, yes. But it's my job to ask you. And he told me something really interesting, which is that we got lucky. And I'm like, what do you mean? Just that Miyamoto was really good. And he's like, you know, Miyamoto was really good. And like, Yokoi was good. We were a good team. But what I mean is unconsciously, Miyamoto and all of us were incorporating motifs from Japanese pop culture into our work, like kawaii culture, like Hello Kitty, yeah. this big the yeah. squashed body, the big head, or like power-ups and things like that. Like we saw in like manga and anime and like the perspectives and the designs. So the, the combination of kawaii culture and manga and anime culture, which was really really like developing into a powerful force in the late 70s and early 80s it kind of unconsciously fueled the design of Japanese video games and it made them seem even more unique and advanced than they, they might have been because Americans didn't know any of the references people were basing them on yeah we didn't have manga or anime really not much uh, or kawaii culture that much in America back then America saw like Hollywood machismo, you know, like power, mm-hmm. strong, manly, masculine. That's why, like, all the American games of the era are like missile command, battle zone, you know, tank something, you know, fight, punch, kill. And, like, <laughs> all of a sudden, these cute games from Japan, like Donkey Kong, like Pac Man, and many others, Frogger, Dig Dug, they all start coming in and, like, upending what the conception of cool is single handedly. Yeah. In America. And yeah. obviously Mario played a big part in that. And that's what Uemura-san told me. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, it wouldn't but, exist without anime and manga and kawaii culture. Yeah. And, and all these all these characters are so iconic. And I'm not going to sidetrack too much because it's something if you haven't, not you, but like listeners out there haven't listened to it or watched it already. The documentary series High Score on Netflix yeah. was really great. Yeah. And there was one snippet about kind of talking about Donkey Kong and then the lawsuit they had with, you know, the rights to the... Yes. You know, it was a copyright infringement for Donkey Kong versus King Kong. And then as a thanks to the attorney or lawyer who represented Nintendo, they named Kirby after him. (laughs) (laughs) Nintendo was already like kind of an 800 pound gorilla because it was doing so well. But yeah, just just to quickly recap that for people who don't know it, they got sued by, was it Universal Pictures? Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got sued by the company who claimed to own, who owned King Kong. And said, "This is obviously copyright infringement, and you know, you all of your all of your base are belong to us, basically. And all of the other like companies in America who had licensed Donkey Kong, like ColecoVision, basically folded. They're like, you know what? They're right. They own Gong- they own King Kong. It was only Nintendo's the lawyer who Nintendo hired in the United States had this like inkling. Wait a second, that's a really old movie. Hey, prove that you own the rights to it." And it turned out they didn't like that it had, it had passed yeah. into the public domain, and so it was a huge win by Nintendo over this American like Hollywood titan. 
And I think that gave them a lot of confidence, too. Yeah, but then, you know, they were thinking about the American competition, but they weren't thinking about the home competition. Well, I mean, there is a lot of competition going on at home. What, what do you mean by that? I'm curious. Sega. Ah, uh, yes. But Sega. So Sega, like, it's interesting. Nintendo dominated for the rest of the 80s. Of course, there's like NEC who made the PC Engine, known as the TurboGrafx-16 in the States. And then Sega came in. But those console wars, to me, are a very 90s phenomenon. I don't really think they're an 80s one. Do you? Like, when, when the, 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 the Sega Genesis came out in, what, 89? I think think so, yeah. Like, right there at the bridge of the 89 to 90, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I I was a Genesis guy. Were you? I was, oh, yeah, 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 hugely. I was born in 73, right? So, like, the Genesis Mm. hit in 89 in the States. So, I was, like, what would that have made? 16. It was, like, a sweet spot. It's, like, black, and it has this, like, chrome on it. And it's, it's like, it's got this really cool computer-looking thing. And the games were edgier than Nintendo. Like, Nintendo always stayed with this kind of family-friendly stuff, right? You a big X-Men fan? I was a big X-Men fan on Genesis. Although my my jam on Genesis was a game called Herzog's Y. It was this real-time kind of strategy game where you played this transforming robot and had to take over the enemy guy's base. But I loved the Genesis. I loved all so many great games on there. Uh, and not all of them Japanese, like, you know, Road Rash yeah. or Road Rage. Yeah, yeah they had uh, a lot of American games on the um, Genesis. Amazing. Well, the Genesis also, like, I'm not a big sports guy, but Genesis had a lot of sports games on it. That they I think... did. I have several on that shelf behind me. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, like, you or your husband. Well, all of us. We have a lot of games on that shelf. But I know, I know Jonathan loves his video games. They always say a good rivalry makes way for like yes. some great development. Well, and Yamauchi was kind of running the company with an iron fist. Like He basically forced other companies to kowtow to him. Most famously, the president of Namco, uh, Mr. Nakamura, who was Namco was like a huge force in the game industry. They were bigger than Nintendo in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And then the the invention of the Famicom. So after they realize Donkey Kong hits big in the arcade, Yamauchi drunkenly calls up Uemura and says, "We need a console. Make me make me a home TV game." And Uemura is like, "What? Like we don't have anything like this." And, he, and he's praying, praying, praying. Yamuchi's just drunk and forgets about it. When he but he comes back into work the next day, and like Yamuchi's like, "Where's my game system?" And <laughs> Yamuchi's like, "Oh man!" And so Yamuchi spent the next year or two analyzing all of the American video game systems. Like he they, he bought the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, the Odyssey Two, like the ColecoVision, and he told me they literally like used acid to dissolve the the casings on the microchips and like blew them up on on like uh, like pho- photographically put them on the wall and like kind of tracing their lines because I think they thought, hey, maybe we can kind of copy some of this. It turned out they couldn't. Like it was all too old fashioned tech for what they wanted to do. So in a nutshell, what Uemura's team did was miniaturize the entire Donkey Kong arcade architecture into something that could fit into a little box and accept cartridges. The Nintendo Entertainment System was literally benchmarked, designed to run only one game, which is Donkey Kong. And that's how it started. So Donkey Kong was more than a big arcade hit. It was this device. It, 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 it allowed the creation of the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Famicom in Japan. And uh, that was literally it. It was, a, it was a Donkey Kong machine scaled down pretty much that you could plug into a TV and play at home. That's why actually the Donkey Kong on the Famicom, the NES, is so great. It's like a perfect port of, of the arcade game. <laughs> but yeah, that... You have to blow into that cartridge. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. <clears throat> that's actually bad. Yeah, that's a big no-no. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> and that led to, like, you know, Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers, blah, 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 you know, up to the We could keep, we could, you know, you can make this as granular as you want. We could spend, like, hours in the 80s or the 90s, but there is so much. But that's the so Nintendo much. history. That's, I, yeah. I think you can say by the Famicom, that's Nintendo. That's the Nintendo we know today because the Famicom was more than a hit. It was like a kind of society-wide phenomenon. But interestingly yeah. enough, Yamauchi and everybody expected that it would go, the fad would pass within three years. That's why he, that's the only reason why he said, well, we better make an American version because it's going to be dead in Japan soon. And so he told Yamauchi, make me an American version, you know, and worked with Nintendo of America and they did. Yamauchi was wrong. Like the Famicom was just starting to gain steam. And as we all know, it became a global phenomenon. It didn't, like, gaming had crashed and cratered in the United States. Like, when Nintendo re-entered the gaming market in the United States, it was seen as a really foolhardy thing to do. Like, all of the industry insiders are like, what? Kids kids have spoken. They don't like video games. You know, glossing over the fact that it was adults and their crappy E.T. and, like, all these <laughs> other really bad games that killed the industry, not kids. And uh, Yamauchi and his people saw that there was an opportunity and they exploited it. And here we are today. Yeah. Making several consoles, one after the other. Many, many, many. I actually think, though, the Famicom, like, if you're talking about transformative game systems, you have the Famicom, of course, because it made modern gaming a thing. Then Gunpei Yokoi came up with the Game Boy in 1989. And I actually think that's the more transformative device. I, because, I was about to ask you because they've come up with so many like Virtual Boy 64, Wii, Switch, etc. Yeah. over the times, but I feel like it all points back to the portability that yeah. comes with the Game Boy, right? Yeah, the Game the Boy, is it. To, yeah. It wasn't even a great game system, you know. No. Like I, I talked to a game in, in, uh, an American game insider who programmed for it at the time, and, and she said they called it the Lame Boy. Like there were, there were, but like <laughs> spec wise, it was it was a, a pale shadow of like the Atari Lynx for instance, yeah. which came out around the same time. But it had the better game library. Like, Nintendo gambled that kids didn't care about the spec. All they cared about was, could they play Mario on it? And they were right, because the Game yeah. Boy, the first one was terrible. Like, it didn't have any backlight. Like, you know, you, you could barely see You may see as well have been playing those handheld Tiger games that are, like, just a little, like, icon moving around the screen when you press a button. You remember those? Oh, totally. <laughs> I do. I do. Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> So I, I actually think the Game Boy is the more revolutionary, is the most revolutionary thing. And it had like the link cable, which was something Yokoi insisted on putting on there that would let you yeah. link yeah. them together and like multiplayer and stuff like that. And that like the, the Nintendo, the, the Game Boy's portability, its its cheapness and its game library got into all sorts of crazy places. Like adults started playing it. Like there's a really mm -hmm. famous photograph of Hillary Clinton playing on an Air Force One. I mean, oh really? There's nice. no there's no Nintendo that, yeah. Entertainment System on on Air Force One. You know, she brought that on board in her in her briefcase and played it. So like, suddenly you have this, and she's playing Tetris. She's playing a Soviet game on a Japanese game system <laughs> in on Air Force One. If there's a better image of globalization out there of the early '90s, I don't know what it is. It's like it's an amazing, amazing moment. Now we're all gaming on the go. You know, with our basically with yeah, our with our sure. smartphones in our pockets. You know, it's yeah. the smartphone is now the dominant game system. That that's actually really? so. If you, you think so? oh yeah, no, if you if you talk about the dominant game systems like as evolutionary, revolutionary types of things, it's you know the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, the Famicom. This is this is me talking here. The Game Boy, 
And then I would actually, as much as I love it, skip over the Genesis and go to the Sony PlayStation, which I it, it was hugely transformative because it brought CD players yeah. in. And then this is this might sound a little odd. The Xbox, not because it's a particularly revolutionary system, but because it brought American gaming back into the console sphere. So you you know, you have this kind of lineage of things. The Japanese game companies dominated for like 15 years. Like they throughout the 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 end of the 20, 20th century, like no American game company could hope to rival them. It was Nintendo, Sega, Sony, like unbeatable until the Xbox arrived around 2000 and, and flipped the script again. So it, it's really amazing. Before we jump to the future, because we there's so much, again, we're running out of time here. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah. have so much we could talk about. But I did want to ask you one question before, again, we jump to the future. Did you watch the Tetris movie on Apple? Yes, TV? I love the Tetris okay. movie. I heard it was amazing. I, it's on my watch list. I haven't had time to watch it, but I have only heard good things about it. And you brought up Tetris just a second ago, so that's why. Yeah, I, yeah, no, it, it, I must watch. It's, of course, it's stylized. It's, it's exaggerated. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You know, don't, don't like, cite this in your paper on Tetris if you're writing about it at school. <laughs> but it's oh, yeah, great, you know, but it's great. It, it's really fun. Like, when I heard they were doing a Tetris movie, I'm like, you mean, like, people dressed like blocks doing an interpretive Didn't dance Didn't they do that stage? with uh, Seth Rogen or something like yeah, that? Yeah, or with something the... like that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Pixel or whatever it was called. Exactly. Oh, let's not bring up that. No, let's not. <laughs> it was Adam Sandler, excuse me. Yeah, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. <laughs> like Japanese game movies are dominant now. You know, you have like yeah. Super Mario Brothers, the movie. You, you and uh, you and Pat just talked about that on your podcast. I think oh, you both yeah. saw it. Yeah, we you, did. Uh... <laughs> we did. It's it's not my. It's not a movie made for me, but I respect what they did with it. Oh yeah, it was fun. It was. Fun. It was. Yeah, you know. I wish. Honestly, I wish I'd gone and seen it with a little kid. I I think it's it's best viewed with a child. That you know. I, I speaking as someone who did, I it was enjoyable because my son enjoyed it so much. Exactly, that, so I think I, that added to the the enjoyment. The the only way I was able to do it was to try to make myself a child by drinking heavily <laughs> before, <laughs> before I went in. It kind of worked. I was very childish <laughs> in the movie theater, but uh, yeah, no, seriously, going in sober with a kid is probably the way to 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 appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, going drunk with a kid too. Going really drunk with a kid. It depends, you know, <laughs> you know what kind of parent you are, or what kind of kid you got. I mean, we're in New Orleans. They serve alcohol at the movie theaters here, so yeah, I mean, it's true. Right here, but. this is true. <laughs> I mean, this, you are the land of the drive-through uh, cocktail. Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 Wow! As long as you don't have a straw in it, you're you're good. You can have it's it in the car. Law and oh my god, we're wow. so far off course here. But wow, it's the stupidest law. You can literally take the lid off, drink out of it, and then put the lid back on. But as long as the straw hole's not punched, it's not an open container. We're not off so course dumb. because remember the Nintendo Entertainment System wouldn't exist without Yamauchi getting drunk one night and telling and telling <laughs> alcohol is like the, the, the it's it's the foundation of all the fun stuff that's happened in our on our planet. Yeah, I mean, so. alcohol. Yeah. It seems to help you make you think because a lot of people I remember when I was studying abroad a lot of people would say oh yeah I speak Japanese better when I'm sure. drunk yes yes <laughs> it's just you feel exactly. it's a it's a confidence builder and a barrier remover that's what I, it is well, yeah, I, I guess you don't notice when you're having happy accidents do you know what I mean you're just fun about yeah kidding yeah, yeah, I wonder how actually many. I wonder if any, like many of the gaming consoles Nintendo had were like kind of happy accidents. Yeah, in some I, way. I don't. One of the things I learned about from when I was writing Pure Invention, and this isn't just directed at Nintendo, it's just that nobody has any idea what's going to hit. Nobody. Like, it, there's a magic to it. And like, you make something, you put it out there, and what really decides what's a hit or not is not the company that made it. It's all of us. It's mm -hmm. the people who choose to adopt it. 
And so the the story of Nintendo, without getting you know too poetic here, is really the story of all of us, all of us pivoting our fantasy lives, our leisure lives, into a new form of, of entertainment and escape and, and relaxing. Which is you know it was provided to us by Nintendo, but like if we hadn't all you know chosen to go that direction, Nintendo wouldn't have gone anywhere. So one of the really cool things about a lot of Japanese pop culture is that it's a, a push-pull. Do you know what I mean? It's like people in Japan make it, but it's it's the consumers both in Japan and abroad who really make it and take it to the next level. And mm-hmm. Nintendo is a great example of that um, and a, a kind of symbol in a lot of ways. I, I think it is the ultimate fantasy delivery device. The Nintendo Entertainment System and the Game Boy they just injected Japanese sensibilities into the global mainstream like nothing else had before. So two truly, truly transformative company, products, people, and us. Yeah. And like you mentioned prior to us recording here, I mean, the pandemic, like Animal Crossing, no one saw Animal Crossing being that giant no. bridge that it became during the pandemic where it kind of connected people where they couldn't, at a time when they couldn't physically connect, they can all go to their little animal islands and... Yeah trade vegetables or whatever the hell. I didn't play Animal Crossing. I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, no, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Animal Crossing it's, was the, the pandemic game. Animal Crossing yeah. was the pandemic it game. It was. That same year an anime became the top grossing movie of of the planet. Uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba Demon Slayer. Yeah. Mugen yeah. Train. Infinity Train. That's a long title. Yeah. <laughs> that became the biggest movie on the planet in 2020. So like Japanese products like we're the life preserver in this really, really horrific time in human history. And we're still yeah. seeing it today. Like, you know, Zelda, the tears of the, of the kingdom, it sold 10 million copies in 72 hours. That's crazy. That is yeah. crazy. So speaking of Zelda and just the present day, like, where do you see, like, what do you think the future holds for Nintendo? Not only in Japan, but in the world in terms of its position within the global gaming industry. Because a lot of people see PlayStation and, and even Xbox to an extent physically and, and like functionality wise, like bringing this like hardware that's mind blowing. Nintendo does too, you know, not to discredit it by any means, but you know, it feels like they're like kind of playing from behind in that in that category. Well, they're but not. They're not behind. Think, they're not behind. Not them. behind. They're not, no, because they're they, not, they yeah. deliberately choose off-the-shelf right. hardware, both because it's cheaper to use. This is something Gunpei Yokoi came up with. He called it lateral thinking with withered technology, which is a complicated way of saying use proven off-the-shelf off-the-shelf stuff. Like, don't throw all your money into coming up with something high-tech and cutting-edge and new. Bleeding because the bleeding edge is really unstable. There's a, there's a high failure yeah, rate. Boy. Was it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the one time they tried that, it was like a total, total failure. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they stick to tried and true. And it turns out that they've been right. Like, there there are a subset of gamers who only want the bleeding edge. But most people just want a solid experience. Like, it doesn't have to be 8K, you know, virtual reality surround sound. They, it can be cute characters in this well-rendered world that's, like, within the bounds of what's, you know the scope of, of modern technology. Yeah. They're not always... Because Tears of the Kingdom doesn't look a whole lot different from Breath of the Wild. I mean, the, the gameplay obviously is really cool and there's a lot of new elements, but like visually speaking, it doesn't like... I'm not like, whoa, a quantum leap. It, it's pretty much the same thing, just expanded out, which is yeah. really what people want. People always say they want something new, but what they really want is old stuff <laughs> that's kind of disguised as new stuff. And Nintendo yeah. is an expert at doing that. And so I think they're going to keep doing it in the future. They're really good at passing the baton to newer generations. 
Mm-hmm. So even when they've suffered terrible losses, like, you know, Yamauchi, you know, passes, steps down, passes away, or Satoru Iwata passes away, or like, you know, they, they pass the baton to people who are understand the Nintendo ethos. It's a very closed company, which mm-hmm. can be a bad thing, but also a good thing, too. And like, it has its own culture and its own way of doing things. And I don't think it's nearly as aggressive of a company as it used to be under Yamauchi. But it still yeah. very much marches to the beat of its own drummer. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. No, I, I agree. I agree. Same, same. Yeah. They're going to be but jumping you, like, over barrels and like hammering, <laughs> you know, them for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Talking about jumping over barrels and foreseeable future. Let's talk about your foreseeable future. Because <laughs> we're kind of hitting up the uh, time here. And I don't want to leave you without time to talk about your upcoming projects and things you have going on. Well, thank What you. barrels are you jumping over trying to save <laughs> Pauline from a Donkey Kong? The, the, uh, people, people are always asking me when I'm coming out with a sequel to Pure Invention. I would love to. But for the meantime, I've launched a newsletter where I take like kind of headlines and happenings and explore them in long form essays that are take a very pure invention type approach and you might be surprised but it's called pure invention the newsletter (laughs) it's at pureinventionbook.com slash newsletter and i highly recommend everybody please if you liked pure invention or you like this kind of stuff please check out pureinventionbook.com and uh navigate to the newsletter and you'll find much more writing and deep thoughts by matt alt on all of this question your newsletter so if someone wants to join your newsletter but hasn't done it yet can they go into a back catalog to yes. get the older ones. Oh, okay. yes. Big back catalog up there. It's on the website, pureinventionbook.com. I keep saying it. I feel like ninety nine ninety nine. Buy it now. <laughs> it's free, but it's free. It's free. <laughs> Subscriptions greatly appreciated. You can subscribe, but please check it out. We'll do. And when we release this episode, we'll make sure you put that link to thank you thank you i'm actually i'm right on the verge it's 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 hosted in a different place right now but i'm I'm gonna probably migrate to substack pretty soon so like the link might have changed by the time we're actually going up i'll give it to you it'll be in the show notes i'll link up with it yeah thank you (laughs) link just like a hero of a certain game i want you to adventure through the 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 time to come and and find your quest (laughs) in in my newsletter I've been intentionally trying to work these names into yes. uh, my sentences throughout, but Mario is really a hard one, and Pikachu is. I Zelda, Zelda is too. Yeah, we didn't naturally even, and <laughs> we didn't even get to Pikachu, did we? He's, that's a uh, whole. You know, we, earlier we in our had season, an episode we, on that. We're yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think people it. are so tired of hearing about us talking about Pikachu. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I don't choose you, Pikachu. I choose you. I choose you to go away. Um, <laughs> If they're interested, they can go back into episodes two and three and listen to our Pokemon. Pokemon. Have you heard of this thing? If you haven't heard of this thing, go back and check out the Cruise podcast. (laughs) Exactly. So, well, thanks for having me on. It was really great, as always. Thank you for coming on. Um, It's our pleasure. I look forward to going through the drive-thru with you and getting a daiquiri next time I'm in town. Absolutely. It's my my pleasure and my pride in my city to to drive through daiquiri. I really do want to get out there again soon i promise i will (laughs) that was good man all right well thank you so much thank you sorry for the late start but let's let's uh let's do it again sometime absolutely man thank you excellent and that's it for this week's episode thank you so much for tuning into the crew of japan podcast a very special thank you to our friend matt alt for joining us today to give us a true history lesson on how nintendo became the entity it is today I love these kind of historical deep dives. 
really finding out how some of the most beloved pop culture icons came to be and the driving forces behind them. If Nintendo would have waited for those rights for Popeye, we would have never had Mario. Wild to think about it. If you haven't already and are interested in learning more about so many various pop culture phenomena and stories relating to Japan, Matt's your dude. I highly suggest checking out Matt's book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, available in paperback, hardback, and audiobook. And while you're at it, check out his Substack, as well as the fun Pure Tokyo Scope podcast he records with Patrick Macias. We'll have them all linked out in the show notes. What did you enjoy the most about today's chat with Matt? What surprised you the most about Nintendo's past? Share with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and wherever else you may find us, LinkedIn, at Crew of Japan Podcast. I'll spell it out for you. K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Crew of Japan Podcast. While you're there, give us a follow, a like, a retweet, share, repost, comment, whatever floats your boat. Let us know how you're enjoying the podcast. Or perhaps you prefer to provide your feedback in a more private setting. Send us an email at crewofjapanpodcast at gmail.com. I'll spell it one more time. K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And remember, we're looking for those emails for a season recap episode, so send them on over. We're waiting for you. And speaking of feedback, if you're enjoying what you're listening to today or any of the episodes this season or our previous seasons, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming app. Every single one of those five-star ratings and reviews helps others interested in Japan and this kind of content find the podcast. And I'm being 100% sincere when I say that any and all support or ratings and reviews are incredibly appreciated. But that's it for today. Until next time.